0: Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in.
1: Good morning again. I'm really glad that you're here today and glad that we're getting to dive into this chapter together. Um, A little bit about me this past week. I spent the last eight days in Brazil in the Amazon jungle working with our pastors through our ministry partner, Justice and Mercy International, last week. Um, And so I'm riding high on just getting to be with some of the most godly men and women and the most sacrificial human beings on planet earth for an entire week. Um, In spite of the fact that after several delays coming home from Miami last night, I did not hit my driveway until 2 a.m. I've had 20 percent more coffee than normal, so you don't have to cut me any additional slack today. Um, It doesn't matter. We're good to go. I'm looking forward to this chapter. So several... uh, gosh, several weeks ago now, we got to take the students from all the campuses at Rolling Hills to their annual summer beach camp. Um, And Jason Hale, the campus pastor of the Nolensville campus, and I got to go and teach that that week. And on the way home, one of our key volunteers, and you guys know the Smizer family? They're actually over here on the front row, not to draw unnatural attention. At Easter Sunday, this was their family photo. So sweet. I've run out of embarrassing stories to tell about my kids. Um, y'all need to do some extra stuff. Um, so, I'm now telling embarrassing stories about other people's kids. So, if you have one, just go ahead and email me now and tell me what it is. I do get people's permission before do- they knew this was going to happen. So, Marion is driving the kids home after spending the week at the beach with us and gets to one of her stopping points. I hope I'm telling this correctly. And looks in the back seat, and sweet little Josie, the youngest baby, has taken a magic marker and colored her whole self. Isn't she cute? And you can fact check me later, but I think the story goes that she was very upset that Marion cleaned her off, right? Like it was just not, this was not a Sharpie. We don't have to worry about anything that would happen later. But it has made me think, and I've actually told that story in a couple of places now as I've taught through camps this summer, because there's this moment where life just leaves a mark. And the things that we experience in life leave their mark on us. And right from the very beginning of human recorded history, and we have to, if we're going to properly understand Romans 13, we have to go right back to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. It's at the start of your notes today that since the very beginning of all of world history, since the planet was in existence, humans have always had an authority problem since day one. You can look back at Genesis chapter 3. It's the story of perfection in the garden. We know we've got Adam and Eve, and they literally spend all of their time in uninterrupted bliss with our heavenly Father, and yet the serpent was more crafty. This is literally why we will not have a pet snake in my house. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Humans lived in absolute perfection and had a single prohibition, and yet they broke it. And we can't get mad at Adam and Eve because you and I would have done the exact same thing. Sometimes I think that the children we have in life become experts at doing the thing that they're not supposed to do. And as soon as you utter the thing that they're not supposed to do, that is the very thing that they want to do and we can't just blame it on the kids. Because as soon as I hear that there's something I'm not supposed to do, I'm looking for a loophole to get myself to be able to do it. It's the human condition. And we didn't make it two chapters past that before the wickedness of the earth had increased so much that God had to send a flood and basically start over with humans. You know the Noah story. It's a story that we tell to children, which is so weird because it's like, oh, Noah, here's the ark and he built a big boat and God gave us a rainbow and all the animals got to, everybody else drowned. We like leave that story out altogether. Like, we don't tell all the kids. Like, it's in their nurseries, and it's so cute to watch the giraffes and the elephants march two by two onto the ark. Everybody else drowned. Terrible story that we give to children. Who knows? And then we don't make it four chapters after that, before the wickedness of the earth had increased so much again, that we're in Genesis chapter 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And I always kind of heard this story as a kid, and I thought it was interpreted in a different manner because it's I always thought oh if they're trying to build a tower up to heaven it's just because they want to reach God no because scripture says that they said come let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens not so that we can reach God but so that we can make a name for ourselves and I'm looking at us America because I can't think of a better description uh, of not only us corporately and us nationally but also us individually. Everybody wants to be an influencer but nobody ever really wants to be influenced. And We want to choose who those influences are. Isaiah forty-seven ten is giving a description of the Babylonian mantra. It's in as a precursor to what's going to happen when the Babylonian army came in and laid siege to the city of God's people, tore down the temple. Nebuchadnezzar carted off the boys to Live and we got the book of Daniel to give us all of the information on that. But it says you've trusted in your wickedness. We've trusted in ourselves. And you've said, nobody sees me, I can do what I want. <laughs> your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when they say, when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. We stop trusting the experts when we think that we are the experts. There are some people that went out there and got a PhD in biology, and some people went out and got a PhD in Google. Some people went out there and got an an MD in pulmonology and some people got an MD in web and we like to be experts and we like to think that we know everything and we like to think that we can make all of our decisions and all of our determinations because from day one we've had an authority problem and whenever we have an authority problem it always leads to exactly what it led to in Genesis chapter 3 and what was chronologically given to us in Romans chapters 1 through 4 that we are all sinners separated from God because of the nature of our sin and sin no matter how hidden, no matter how under control we have it, always leaves a mark. Sin always leaves a mark in our lives. Now, we get to Romans chapter 13, and I'll just go ahead and tell you um, that it's the chapter about submitting, we also do not like the word submit, um, to government authorities in our life, And right at the very beginning, it's important for us to know, like, before I even read Romans chapter 13, verse 1, I want you to know that going into it, Paul makes no provision for the morality of the government in question. Like, there's not a, hey, submit to your government if it's good, and if it's helpful, and if it's, like, on the grander scheme, good for the common welfare of all people. Like, submit to your governing authorities as long as they put a little sign on the symbol that says, in God we trust. Like, he didn't say that. Because that did not exist for him. And he was not making a mental prohibition to tell a group of people, you can submit to governing authorities as long as you think that they're good. As long as you think the things that they do and the things that they enact and the the policies that they create somehow go in line with what it says in the books of Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. He says, no, submit. Submit. Paul makes no provision for the morality of the government in question, and we ought to do a deep dive to figure out what government he was living under for his entire lifetime when he wrote these words. It was the Roman government. And on one hand, you have this ancient wonder of the world. Like the the Roman government gave us a system of education, intellectualism, transportation, justice, commerce, trade, and even policy that we use as a model for many of the world systems that we live in today. It was a city population that historically was given around 700,000 to about a million people right in the city of Rome. It was a major metropolitan area, and that didn't even count all the peoples that had been conquered and who were enslaved who were not giving citizenship status. In terms of corruption, the wealth of the Roman economy was not based on productive industry. It wasn't based on legitimate trade, although they did both. It was based on plunder and the extortion and the conquest of people. Nothing is more noteworthy about the Roman Empire than their obsession with all things entertainment. And if you know that about the Roman government, you ought to think that, oh, that's of the world that we live in today. The obsession with everything that is entertainment and really the impurities that go along with it. Their entertainment was not like Netflix or ESPN. It was chariot races where people died, prisoners and religiously persecuted, being eaten for sport by wild animals, and then gladiators fighting to the death with hundreds of thousands of people in the stands screaming and chanting and wanting more, wanting more blood, wanting more death, wanting more disastrous life-altering sport. And then you get the emperors. Starting with Caesar Augustus from the time that Jesus was born, that name Augustus that he took on as the new Caesar in town literally means worthy, majestic. So the name of Caesar, Augustus, worthy, majestic. They were worshiped as gods. And so in that context, a group of people were born who would only give that praise, only give that honor, only give that worthwhile designation to Jesus. We just sang it. Jesus, worthy is your name. Imagine that context, and yet Paul writes these words. Tiberius, when Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist, he named a new city after Emperor Tiberius. Caligula was on a crazy reign of terror. He had mandatory Orgies. Nobody asked me what that word means at the end of this. I'm not going to tell you. Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because of the Christian conflict, and the Christian conflict in question was what we've been reading about in the book of Romans, the idea of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians not getting along and not knowing exactly how they were supposed to follow this new way. And then you go Nero, and he's mentally unstable, and enacts all of this crazy persecution, burns the city, blames the Jews and the Christians, and then enacts a massive Christian execution as part of it. The damage that the emperors did goes on and on and on. They're in a desperate, difficult situation. The nature of worship in Rome was nature worship, ancestor worship, and emperor worship. Foreign religions were sometimes tolerated, but sometimes patronized, unless they were thought to be politically dangerous. And you want to talk about politically dangerous? Give us a group of people who want to bow to their God and their God only. Give us a group of people who want to proclaim the name of Jesus and not worship the name of Caesar. The entire Roman Empire left an incredible mark on Jews and eventually the early church of Christians. But you want to talk about a group of people who changed the world? The Roman Empire may have left its mark on Christians. But then Christians, you watch, they left their mark on the Roman Empire. That's the context that Paul's writing these words, and that's the context that we're supposed to hear and receive these words. So we get to Romans chapter 13, verse 1, and it says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. But wait wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is this in relation to? If we go back to the end of verse 12 and realizing that this was a letter that you didn't stop and start when Phoebe was standing in front of the church, she didn't read out Romans chapter 12 and say, and if you come back next week, same bat time, same bat channel, I'll read to you Romans chapter 13. The chapters and the designations weren't there. If you read it from start to finish, you get a fuller picture of what the apostle was trying to say and what the deacon in the life of the church was conveying to people. If you go to the end of chapter 12, it literally concludes with this. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Okay, hold on. If, if the sentence that we read before was, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, and then the very next words are, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's the context in which these words were written. My task this week at the pastor's conference in Brazil, Amazon pastors coming, some of them, days by canoe to get to the conference center to to be taught and equipped to take the word of God in a fresh way back to the communities and the villages and the remote areas where they serve. Indigenous tribes who were there before the Portuguese settlers got there. And it's an amazing story to watch these pastors because they're not just the pastors, they're the social workers, they're the doctors, they're the teachers. I mean, they are the people that lead the communities that they live in and they do it in such a sacrificial way. My task this week was to go and teach biblical hermeneutics. To teach people how to take a passage of Scripture, unpack what that passage of Scripture means, look at it in its immediate surrounding context, take it to the whole section of Scripture that it's in, and then look at the entire book, look at the author, look at the audience, look at the genre of literature that it was, and then finally take it and compare it to the message that's in the entire Bible and see how that particular passage can be taken, understood, and then applied by a group of people who need the Word of God. That's what we do when it says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, and then we go straight to the government, there's a reason for that. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, but wait a minute, they're evil. But we're going to be subject to them because God has established it. And the way that we're going to overcome evil with good is with a submission, with a subjugation It's the Greek word hypotasso, and it literally means to arrange under, to be subordinate, to submit to somebody's control, to yield to admonition or advice, to obey, to be a subject of. And if it was used in a military fashion, it meant in the order of ranks. And I don't know what the ranks are in the Roman government, but we kind of understand that. You got like captains and sergeants and lieutenants and then privates. Like there's an order to the way that they do things. And it's not to make one person inferior, the whole army matters, but it's to say, hey, there's a rank and there's an order and there's a process to what we do. But if you took that same word that was sometimes used in a military context and applied it to what it was used in the early church context, it meant this, a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying someone else's burdens Paul didn't use the word obey. Jews and early Christians would have had a really hard time with obeying the Roman government, but they, he used the word submit, and to them it would have meant a humble, voluntary submission. Why? That's how you're going to overcome evil with good. You're not going to overcome evil with acts of treason and acts of rebellion. In fact, Paul was quite aware that that would have just gotten them killed. No, you're going to overcome that kind of evil with good, and we're not going to mistake that kind of good that Paul's calling for as willful, willing, voluntary submission. Just because human governments have authority, that doesn't mean that God approves of everything that they do. Peter called Pontius Pilate godless, and yet Jesus said, the authority that you have and that we give to you came from above. That authority comes from God. And so what we read in this passage of Scripture, Paul makes no provision for the morality of the government in question. What is for believers here in Rome is for all time, everywhere, So it doesn't matter what sovereign context we were growing up in. You and I, born and raised, many of us, I mean some people weren't, but you got here at some point. Here we are living in a land that's supposed to be in God we trust, one nation under God. This word is not more for us than it is for believers in Iran This word is not more for us. Oh, yeah, we can can do this because here we are living in a land of, of in God we trust. And as soon as our government goes too far away from what we think it means to in God we trust, we're ready to rebel and we're ready to refute and we're ready to complain and we're ready to criticize. We stop praying for our government officials and all we do is condemn our government officials. This word, it's not more for us. ...than it is for believers in Russia or China or any other place in the world where believers are persecuted and where Christianity has been outlawed. It's for all time, everywhere believers. And so we get to this portion where it says, Consequently... Whoever rebels against, verse 2, the authority, is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And judgment in that context was not just a political, not just a criminal judgment that would have happened temporarily. It was actually a judgment of the Lord. Like, it's not a judgment that we want to receive. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. So how is a political party that in my mind I've deemed to be so far from the goodness of God, how is that political party being in power for my good? Well, we already read, and I don't have to take you back there. To Romans 8, where it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to purpose. And we never read the words, oh, God does easy things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God always does 10 commandment things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know that even in the darkest, most dangerous, difficult situations that we've ever walked in, and let's be clear, we've not walked in much. We know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we can know that the one who's in authority over us, the, the party that might be controlling us, the system that is in authority leadership over us, the one that we're supposed to willingly submit to and subject to, is somehow God's servant for our good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath. The ESV says Avengers. I love that. Like, I immediately get a picture of, like, Captain America or Iron Man. Like, imagine just reading those. They are God's Avengers. I love that. Agents of wrath to bring punishment On the wrongdoer. We comply to these words because it's a command and because we have a conscience. It's not just because of the consequences. It continues in verse five, therefore it's necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of the matter of conscience. Like we submit to the word of God because it's a command, but also as a matter of our Holy Spirit-filled Christian conscience. conscience, It's not just because of any consequences that we might receive. And then, almost as a sidebar, it goes into an explanation. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them, and if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. There's a reason why Paul linked revenue with respect. And we're in a system today in which we pay taxes in 58 AD, not far from around the time that this was written. It wasn't a Christian thing, it was a community thing where the citizens of Rome revolted and they said, we're not going to pay Nero's new tax. And here we've got the words of the Apostle Paul telling Christians, don't bother yourself with that rebellion, don't get so tied up in all of that. Why? Because you're supposed to subject to that kind of authority so that you can overcome evil with good. You you remember the passage of Scripture where Jesus was asked by people who wanted to trap him, hey, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, Caesar Augustus? You know, the one who says that he's worthy of all praise? Like, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus grabbed a coin and it had, he says, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And of course they said Caesar. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and then give to the Lord what is the Lord's and it's not an accident that he used these words image and inscription because way back in the book of Genesis it says that we were created in the image of God the image of God is not on a coin the image of God is on your life in my life and not only image but also inscription because we get to the book of Deuteronomy and God gives them the entire law and he gives them the way that they're supposed to live and he says these words today are to be on your hearts it's the image of God that's given to us by almighty God and it's the inscription of his word that's applied to our lives whose image and inscription is on you it's supposed to be him and this is a different message for another day because this is not a message on biblical tithing. This is not a message on biblical giving. But, but we have to think this through. We all pay taxes because you can't not pay taxes. In fact, if you're not paying taxes, talk to me after because I want to know how you're getting away with it. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I did not say that. <laughs> Can we please delete that from the recording? <laughs> like we all pay taxes because we have to. But then we make tithing and charitable giving an option. He didn't just say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He said, give to the Lord what is the Lord's. Whose inscription's on that coin? Caesar. Whose image is there? Caesar. Our giving? whether you participate in it or not. It it might want to be a prayer that you pray and a conversation that you have because it calls into question whose image is in your life and whose inscription is on your heart. Um, Because otherwise, it's ourselves. It's a big old profile picture of me up front. I am and there is none besides me. Let me make a name for myself whose image and inscription that's a that's not even a part of this but if I was doing a message on biblical tithing and generous giving I might pull in a little bit of Romans chapter 13 5 through 7. The thing that you and I have to be concerned about and it's what the rest of the chapter teaches us is that we have to be more concerned about serving God and others than we are with securing seats of power. And every time there's an opening on the Supreme Court, I feel like we get a little bit more concerned with securing a seat of power than we are about being a people who serve God and others. It's all about submitting to God's authority rather than building our own kingdom. We have to be more concerned about seeing and showing others Christ than we ever are about satisfying our own personal desires. The whole deal with obeying God being for us is that the light of Christ is supposed to shine in us. What we want to be more than anything else is a people who are after the common good and welfare of others and for us because it's mostly about the gospel, like the common good for others and us, and mostly the gospel. Tim Keller wrote in the book Uncommon Good, Christians are able to exercise humility in public life That humble submission to governing authorities, that humble submission not only to governing authorities, but any kind of authority that's present for us, regardless of whether or not we would do things the same way and whether or not we believe that the policies that are enacted are biblical in nature, we are able to exercise humility in the public life. Why? Because we recognize the limits of human reason, including our own. Emphasis on the including our own part. Every time an election rolls around, we're going into a local one, we're not that far from a national one, I would do far better to recognize my limits, my limitations, my lack of understanding in a humble way than to go out there in the world and tell everybody that I know exactly what needs to happen and if people don't vote like I do and believe like I do, then they must be wrong. I don't have to be the expert. It's because he says we know we've been saved by faith, not by our moral actions and goodness, and certainly not from my superior belief system. It's confident faith that anchors our relationship with God, but it does not supply an unwavering certainty in all manners. It anchors my relationship to God. In Jeremiah chapter 29, it's where we get that verse like, oh oh yeah, I, I'm so excited about you know, giving my whole life to God, and he's going to work everything out, and it's going to be great. Well, verse 7 says that we are to seek the prosperity and the peace of the city in which I have carried you into exile. You go back to the book of Daniel and you realize that their city was destroyed. They were carted off to live in a foreign government under the most oppressive regime and they were forcibly exiled for a period of 70 years. Not only could we do a sermon about sovereignty in this moment because it was God who did it, but in that moment he says, don't spend your life rebelling against all of that. Instead, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which I've carried you to exile. Pray because if it prospers, you will prosper humbly submit to that kind of authority. If you go back to Romans, starting in verse 8, where we left off, it says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the Law, that's what Jesus gave to us. That's what Paul's explaining to us, that the greatest command is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength with everything that we have. And the second is just like it, love our neighbors as ourselves. And then he gives them this place. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so that's why Paul says, if you love, you're fulfilling all of the law. The commandments say, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be. You know, when we get those commands, that's the very thing that we want to do. It's our sin. It leaves a mark. All those commands, he says, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And if we want to understand a biblical definition of that love, it's unconditional love. It's sacrificial love. It's go the extra mile love. And I understand the idea that you and I are called in love to be a people who stand on truth. And sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is expose the sin of the world so that people can repent of that and choose to understand that Christ died for them, but the manner in which we do it matters. We can speak all the truth that we want to speak, But if we do it in a proud way, if we do it in an arrogant way, if we do it in an unkind way, we're not doing it the Jesus way. And we'll get there next week. I wish we could go there right now. Speaking truth in an aggressive way does not make us a pathway to salvation. It makes us a stumbling block in front of it. And I don't want to skip ahead, but Romans 14 15, we don't want to be a stumbling block. That's the last thing we want to do. Paul explained in Colossians chapter 3 what that love is. As God's chosen people, holy, and because we've been loved by God, because we are holy and dearly loved, we're to clothe ourselves with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We're to bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love. It's like, it's like clothes in the morning, like put it on and wear it wherever you go. It binds them all together in perfect unity. There's this concept, there's this understanding that, that waking up comes before walking well. You got to wake up in the morning before you walk. Have you ever gotten out of bed and not been fully awake? What do you do? You step on things, you trip, you may fall down. Like it's, it's really dangerous, you should not do that. You gotta be fully awake before you determine that you're gonna walk. It says in verse 11, and do this. He's summing it up for us, understanding the present time. We talked about the Roman government, we talked about the persecution of Christians, we talked about the conflict in the early church. He's writing a letter to a church in the very city that he would be executed. Like, we understand what's going on in the context for Christians in this moment. He says, understanding the present time. He's like, I get where you're at. I understand what's going on. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Like, be alert, believers, because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently. The ESV says, let us walk Properly, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. And because it's included in this context, not even in political rebellion and division. It says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We are supposed to exercise, because this is the context that we live in, our constitutional freedoms. But what if we didn't only vote? What if we also volunteered? Please don't think that checking a ballot box is the only way that we're supposed to make the city in which we live, peaceful and prosperous, gotta serve. What if we did not ever attempt to execute judgment, but but instead offered justice? What if we were motivated by prayer, not by partisanship? I understand that there has been a leaning. And it's influenced by both sides of a political coin in our nation that attempts to move us onto their agenda with fear, with propaganda. What if instead of getting so mixed up in all of that, we were motivated by prayer, not partisanship? What if we always spoke from a a posture and a position of humility rather than our humor? Oh, we know better those people are so both sides of the coin this side only cares about their power this side is anti-god and leading this country in a dark difficult i mean like what if we spoke from a position of humility rather than and what if we were led by love period that's it period this whole life that we live it leaves its mark on us But the whole idea of Paul's writings is that we would leave Christ's mark on it. As we head into whatever the next seasons are, this passage is good for us. It's nourishment for us. When we're all about the political things in support of either direction, I don't care what you vote for. When we're especially critical of either side, we're leaving a mark. But it's not the right one. The, the mark that we're supposed to leave is the Christ mark. When you and I leave the wrong mark, somebody's mom is going to have to scrub it off. And truth be told, you and I are living in a, a generation where, where we're having to come behind mean Christians from a decade ago, unkind believers from six months ago, because there's a lot of people out there who have rejected Jesus because of a follower of Jesus. The way that they lived, the way that they behaved, the struggles that were enacted. And here you and I come, and, and we're having to wash off some of the marks that we didn't leave. Let's do it in a loving way. Let's do it in a humble way. Let's do it in an obedience to this passage way. It's okay that we have to come behind and clean up the messes of other believers who have left a really dangerous mark. Let's pray for unbelievers. Let's pray for political leaders, and let's see, regardless of what shakes down and regardless of what happens and wherever it happens, that it is because of the sovereign authority and control of almighty God, and it's good for us because it's an opportunity for us to wear Jesus in such a way that other people see him and desire to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for the chance to look at and be challenged by texts that are difficult God, I just want to take a moment to repent. Maybe the people in this room will give me a little grace and latitude right now where I just get to say, I'm sorry for the moments when I thought I knew better. I'm sorry for the moments when I actually did know better, but I communicated it arrogantly and pridefully and aggressively to somebody else. God, may we be a people who willingly, voluntarily, humbly submit to the authorities that are over us, to the institutions that you've placed here, as a manner and a method of communicating Jesus while we are here. You want us to leave a mark And God, we want to be a people who leave a mark. And we confess to you the moments where we left the wrong mark. Help us to clean up those marks and to leave Jesus in our wake. It's in his powerful name that we pray and to him that we give our life. It's his image that we bear. It's his inscription that's supposed to be on us. So we want to give to him what he deserves. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.